right, welcome to the process. Alex, how are you? Mike, how are you, man? Yeah, good. It's been a couple months since we last synced, and I'm super looking forward to uh, learning what you've been up to and you know, kind of some of the decisions you've been making and where you are heading into really the, the scouting combine of you know, next generation entrepreneurs, <laughs> your Kairos 50. So I'd, I'd really like to, to catch up where you've been. Yeah, I, I don't know about you, but it's certainly been uh, the busiest time of the year for us. It's re- it's really been crazy. Uh, last time we spoke, you know, we were we were starting to uh, talk to Michael from HomeVest. Um, so we were looking at the you know the broader issue of you know h- how do you create a, a a more affordable pathway for uh, renters to start owning a, a home, right? Um, so we talked to Michael from HomeVest, and that was that was a great like I really enjoyed that conversation. I don't know what it was like for you, but. You know, what, what was your experience in that conversation? Because it felt like, like I was getting in there and I was asking hard questions and he was thoughtful and, you know, really paying attention to how he was going to shape his responses, but they were authentic and they, it felt like he was being true to himself. So I, I, I and I know you're up to m- many more things, but I can't wait to hear your response with that as well. Yeah. I mean, let's get into that. I, I think, uh, you know, again, zooming out, you know, the, the, the broader problem that we're looking at solving is, uh, you know, people are kind of locked out of owning a home um, for, you know, a confluence of reasons, but but one is they just can't afford a down payment, right? So Michael was focused on creating a cleaner bridge between renting and owning by helping people, you know, afford the cost of the down payment. And I, look, I, I loved just listening to that combo. I thought it was fascinating. I think, you know, at the time, you know, we were, we were evaluating kind of one of really three paths, right? Path one was, you know, we got involved operationally with him in building this company out, right? Path two was, you know, we really support him and his vision, but just uh, come in as an investor. And path three was, you know, we do nothing, right? And where we actually landed was path two. So, you know, we love Michael. We love the vision. We backed him. Um, I think when it came to, you know, how his style of building a company and solving this problem meshed with our style operationally. We thought, you know, the, the culture fit wasn't aligned, um, but by no means an indictment of Michael. We love Michael and we ended up backing him. But I thought that the conversation kind of guided us all in that direction. And, and you know, Michael certainly um, was on the same page with us as well. Um, so so from, a, from a business perspective, I mean, we, it was extremely insightful. And, and also I just, I just loved kind of hearing you drill into the founder psyche yeah, that was really good. So am I hearing this correctly, that I just saved both you millions of dollars? Is that what you just said? <laughs> and somehow, I, like, somehow, somehow this, you know, isn't going to kind of reap its rewards back into my financial statements. Yeah, I, like, I, 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 what I know. would describe it is that we both are uh, using our time more effectively because of you. I can't probably, you know, you know that we, we now have to win as a company. HomeBest has to win. Um, but I think it was it was good to... Uh, just just be very very thoughtful up front, which is you know rare in entrepreneurship about whether you know your work styles align you know under a five to ten year vision, and that, that's what's so interesting about entrepreneurship. It's like you always want to get to the next step, so you're willing to make short term trade offs. Um, but you know the one area where you really shouldn't be doing that is you know the people you're starting your business with because you're setting a culture for the company. And, you know, I, I think what, what you revealed and, and, you know, was, was really fun to, to kind of hear play out live is, you know, Michael is very 
uh, methodical and conscientious and careful about the way he wants to build this business. And, and, you know, I agreed with your takeaway, which is he's a great founder for this problem, right? I think his personality wouldn't match for every type of problem, um, but he was great for this very nuanced, very complicated uh, solution in the housing market. And when you think about your model, your high performance model for selection and for backing, and if the company vision is in the center, and then surrounding that vision is strategy, is founder uh, psychological makeup, its culture, its resources, financial and otherwise, um, you know, and there's probably a couple other variables that I'm I'm not thinking of clearly right now. But what, how big of a piece? is culture for you when you're thinking about if this company can be successful? Because yeah, yeah. that, that's a little bit of a loaded question because every company has a culture. So it's not like um, good culture, bad culture. Every company has a culture. It's alignment of culture. Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. I think it's one of those that gets, uh, I think people like to create a false narrative around how a culture was developed in, in many cases, right? I, I think What's interesting is that when we're coming in, you know, really in any company, whether we're, you know, involved in co-founding it on the ground floor or funding it at the seed stage, you know, the culture is, is in very, very early stages and it's not there yet, right? And I think, you know, a ton of it is going to be shaped by the personalities of the founding team and what they value and how they interact with each other. And what you see a lot of times is companies will create these like our values statements that have like 20 things on them and mean nothing. We talked a little bit about this with Tim actually a few episodes ago, right? I, th- I think what, what we try to do is look for, you know, what, what's being revealed in the personality of this founder and the founding team and how does this play out down the road? And we can help them, you know, try to be self-aware about, you know, what their true core values are that they need to hire around, right? Um, you know, I, I guess if I were to, to really zoom out, I think culture is really, really critical to be mindful of when you start to make your like, you know, first wave of hires and, de- and, de- and definitely your second and your third. But I do think like people like to pretend like they had everything figured out from the beginning and it's more about reading the founder and thinking about how it'll play out down the road. Yeah. What I love about the decision that you're sharing with me is that you, you appreciate him. You liked the strategy, you liked the vision, you saw the need for it. And you said, yeah, but it's not, we're going to back you, but we're not going to mesh our cultures because your culture zigging and he's zagging. And you, it sounds like you both agreed, or at least you guys on your side were clear that that's, we don't want to be in that business working with him. We're just going to screw it up. And yeah, ex- exactly. I, th- I think if, you know, to be more specific too, about our culture, you know, we're very much about you know, being aggressive and consumer and media facing. And, you know, I, I think, you know, brand is, is critical to everything that we do. And if you look at something like Rhino, right, which is the company that, you know, essentially replaced security deposits, you know, that's been a, a dream for our culture because we've been able to shout from the rooftops in government offices, uh, you know, in investors' offices, media offices, you know, security deposits are a thing of the past. We're putting thousands of dollars back in consumers' pockets. And Rhino is solving this problem, right? In the case of a home vest, you know, we're not ready to go super aggressive, you know, shouting from the rooftops about home vest. It, it, we really need to take time and move, move conscientiously um, or else that, that type of business could a- accidentally turn predatory, 
right? If you just, mm, if you, yeah. you know, there's mm-hmm. this like, there's this like move fast and break stuff mindset in startups that doesn't always apply for every type of business. Um, so, so that's the specific answer, right? It's like, we just, the way that we like to work doesn't align with the way that you need to get product market fit for that company. Okay. So here's a, is something that I, I mean, I think about culture a lot because it really is powerful in both directions to slow people down and to speed things up as well. But culture is not established. It's organic, it's growing, but there are artifacts of culture. There's leave behind and the leave behind are, um, are the quality of relationships. So uh, culture is culture happens through relationships. It's not words on walls. It's not the value statements that, that the founders or executive team makes. It's, it happens in hallways. It happens in difficult conversations. It, and it happens, you know, when things are going well, uh, likewise. But it's the, the artifact of the way that people relate with each other. So I think what, you, what I'm hearing you say is that I just didn't want to be in that business. I want to support it, but I don't want to be in it because the cultures don't work. I, I'll tell you, I don't know. I'm sure that VC firms do that type of work on a regular basis or that type of decision processing. But I loved, I loved drilling in with you guys on that. And I, do you know what his experience was like? Do I know what his experience was like? Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah. We've been texting since. I mean, I, I, I think that it was, he certainly <laughs> said he loved it. I mean, I, I think it's rare to take a step back and really be that introspective, especially in the state of a startup that they're in where, you know, he's really in sell mode. So what's interesting is like, he, you know, on the back end, he has to make sure that the financial model works. And again, you know, never, ever crosses the edge to being predatory to consumers, right? Um, really needs to help them and save them money. At the same time, he needs to constantly be selling to uh, potential hires, investors, uh, lenders, uh, you know, home buyers. It's, it's a lot of selling. So you don't really get time and space to think about yourself very often, uh, unfortunately, when you're playing the, uh, the founder game. Epic. Okay. So what are some of the challenges you guys are going through right now as you're building your showcase premiere Kairos 50? You know, yeah. what, what goes, what goes into that? And I'll tell you why I'm asking that specific question is because you've got a lot of decisions you got to make, but you're hosting hundreds, maybe thousands of people rooftop, you know, on, on the world trade center. Like that's rad. And I, the reason I'm asking about that is because we're thinking about creating a conference as well. And you know, I'd love to know some of the mechanics that are going into it and what is occupying bandwidth during that process as well for you. So that's more in the weeds about you guys building your business too. Yeah, yeah. I'll go, I'll go over a few of it, these things. Um, so, so in terms of what the Kairos 50 is, it's our annual showcase of, you know, 50 top up and coming companies. You know, we call it the pre-seed stage. Uh, you know, the, the terminology keeps changing as the startup world grows. But, um, you know, what we define that as is, you know, you have a product or prototype built um, but you're in your your early early infancy of of funding, right? Um, so in, in terms of what it is, you know, for us, it's a way to really showcase 50 great companies that are you know aligned with our mission of making life better and more affordable for consumers. So everyone is addressing you know the the overall theme of affordability. And it's a way to you know start getting to know people and to create a positive impression on them at the beginning. Right. And, you know, when I say positive impression, you know, we're, we're, we, we have a, a fund that's investing, you know, 50K into each of them. 
right? We're also showcasing all of them at the top of the World Trade Center in front of a, a really you know unique curated audience, right? It's not just investors, but it's media executives, it's it's corporate executives, it's even people from the government world, um, and it's all free, right? Like like you know it's it's not something that we charge for. So you know for us, you know if you even to talk about culture. You know, we really want to be, you know, giving and supporting these entrepreneurs who are going after big, important problems at the beginning of their careers. And, you know, if, if nothing bigger ever comes from it, um, if we never end up writing a bigger check out of our core fund or anything, that that's okay. Um, you know, maybe, maybe the, you know, there'll be a business relationship in five years or 10 years. But um, I think, you know, if you're asking about the business side of, of the event, you know, I think you really kind of have to make a choice of who your customer is. And in this case, our customer is the Kairos 50. We just want them to have an incredible experience. So we don't charge anyone, right? We, um, you know, the attendees who are coming, um, you know, are, are there because we think they'll make a positive impact on the K50. Um, we have sponsors, you know, who are generously covering it. Um, and again, the K50 don't pay. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't call that an event business, really. I would call this a showcase um, that supports a core part of our company, but isn't in itself a business unit, right? But I think every event mm -hmm. and conference, you know, we've been forced with a bunch of decisions of, you know, do we turn this event into a business? And over and over again, you know, we've been saying no, because we don't want to create any, uh, in, you know, negative incentive structures to get the best people in the room. That being said, you know, I think there are a lot of great events when people come to learn and they're explicitly saying, I'm here to learn about this, or I'm here to meet X types of people. Um, and, and that's more of a, you know, business, right? Um, and we've looked, you know, we just haven't had the capacity to do that. I do think there's a business there. Um, but from a capacity perspective, we've tabled that. Mm, okay. And, you know, I, I know we started this conversation day one of, you know, the process that we're doing here where I was like fired up on this idea that somebody from the Finding Mastery community would have a prototype and you know, they're right at the cusp of kind of breaking something out and they would submit. And then, you know, like the fantasy is all 50 would be from Finding Mastery. It didn't happen <laughs> that way though, did it? <laughs> like I don't, we, no. didn't, we didn't quite get there yet, did we? No, we're not there yet. But I mean, I, look, I'll, I'll say this. Um, the good news is that the Kairos 50 is now evolving from an event into something that we do year round. So now that we created this kind of separate vehicle to provide, you know, early funding to all of the K50, um, we're going to actually be, you know, scouting all year, right? So it, what's funny is, you know, right after this event ends, um, we're going to start recruitment for the next Kairos 50 class. Um, but mm -hmm. if, you know, if, if you zoom out, right, you ask like why we've been so busy. I mean, you know, Karim Osman on our team, who's been the lead on the Kairos 50, he's reviewed over 4,500 companies, right? And, you know, we've technically made uh, over 50 investments in the last three months, I mean, it's been crazy. You want to talk about quick decision making? I mean, you know, this is uh, this is the fire hose. So, Ooh, and what is <laughs> what are some of the what are some of the ranges that you're funding? Like, what is the what's the lowest amount that you funded? And I know that it's not as clean as dollar amount because some of the resources will be time spent, executive resources from your team in the infused in the business but like what are the ranges just financially that we're talking about yeah look we well we really have two vehicles right so we have this vehicle that enables us to put fifty thousand dollars into each of the k50 right so that's a separate mm -hmm. vehicle um mm -hmm. and those are all 50k checks everyone mm -hmm. you know gets the same value 
And then we have, mm-hmm. you know, our core fund, which is much more around getting involved operationally in companies, right? And that ranges mm-hmm. from, you know, anywhere from 125,000 to uh, upwards of a million. Um, and that, mm-hmm. you know, that is, as you said, a combination of our operational involvement and just alignment with our thesis um, and our confidence in the problem they're solving. So in the case of HomeVest, you know, we're not involved operationally, but we, you know, we love the problem they're solving. Um, in the case of something like Rhino, uh, you know, we've been, we've been you know, very operationally involved and co-founded the company. Um, and we'll put more behind that one. Okay. And then, so now I want to just go one level deeper, uh, more practical. Let's say a company's netting, so after expenses and all that good stuff, netting uh, somewhere between one and 10 million, like $5 million. Okay? In revenue? So they're, they're, yeah. So they're running. It's good. You know, building a team, growing, reinvesting back in the company, you know, and it's, let's say 5 million. And they want to go big. They're like, okay, we've got our core base product. We know that if we double down, triple down on internal resources and external marketing and storytelling, like we got something. Let's go. Is that the type of business that you would say would be smart to take on VC? Or would you say, no, no, no. If it's, listen, figure it out. You got a surplus of four plus in the bank, five plus in the bank, and you're you're cracking it. Like, just be smart about your resources. Or like, how, how do you... How do you think about that type of business strategy? Yeah, I, I think the the question that should be asked a little bit more often is is you know I think people will look at this like like would venture dollars be good for my company? I think that what's what's overlooked is is my type of business aligned with the business model of venture? Right. So mm-hmm. once you take venture money, you are essentially starting the clock. Um, structurally, a venture fund is usually a ten year vehicle, right? Which first of all, means that they need liquidity on each investment within 10 years, right? Second of all, if you just look at the math, right, you know, 90% of startups are failing, you know, roughly, right? So, you know, to even return the capital of a fund, uh, you know, one out of 10 needs to 10x. And at that point, you're just breaking even, right? So, you know, the the timeline of liquidity, um, which is, you know, 10 years or less, plus the expectation of return, you know, need, really, like, truly need to be aligned with the founders' expectations for how they want to build the company. And then you start to tie that into culture, right? You know, you really need a fast-moving, uh, you know, high-growth-oriented culture. Uh, you know, I don't want to say always, but generally to be aligned with venture. Really cool. Okay. You, you yep, know, so, so to answer your question, I, you know, I, I think a startup should look for venture funding when, you know, they – like right now, I feel like there's a lot of venture money that's being raised to like experiment with uh, marketing. Um, and, you know, a lot of it is, you know, especially in direct to consumer products, it's just kind of being burnt on uh, AdWords, things like that, right? I believe, you know, venture money should be used when um, you kind of have, let, let, let's say you're, oh, I'll use an example that's close to home. Rhino is working really well in New York, right? We could either wait for organic revenue growth to hire sales teams in other states, or we can raise more venture capital and put sales teams on the ground in each region now, right? That's a good use of venture money, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Because, totally because the time it would take to, get, to generate the profits from um, the revenue in our, in our launch market, you know, that, that works against us in a business where we need to move quickly to really become, you know, a nationwide product as opposed to just, uh, you know, one or two states, Okay, I want to I want to go forward on one question, but back first. So yeah, the, cool. What was what, what was the ad word 
like the the raise around AdWords. Well, well that just, sounds like social media marketing and yeah, like, yeah. I mean, there there are a lot of companies that are building direct to consumer products that were traditionally sold at retail. Um, an easy example would be you know Casper, which was you know a company that spun out of Kairos a while back. But you know that you know there was just a company called uh, Hims, for example, that was uh, you know it's addressing you know baldness and uh, erectile dysfunction, and it's bringing supplements straight to your home. And they've mm-hmm. raised just a crazy amount of money recently. Um, and on one hand, it's interesting because you know out of no out of nowhere, you know in 2018, you know what you used to only associate as let's say Rogaine or Viagra can all of a sudden become hymns, you know, owning that space in consumers' minds. But what's interesting mm. is, you know, the venture money that they're raising is going significantly into uh, Facebook ads, Google ads, you know, even TV ads. Um, they, you know, I, I don't know the numbers behind the scenes, right? But I can tell you that we're seeing, you know, a Casper for everything. And the venture money is almost entirely going to marketing. And they just can't all win. And they can't all beat Amazon. And it feels like gambling. Got it. And face, and, you know, okay. also it's not 2015 mm-hmm. anymore. You know, Facebook ads are more expensive than they were, and you know, the you know, obviously there will always be new platforms. Um, but you know, I'm just telling you that we see a trend of a lot of you know people just raising venture money to burn it on marketing. Mm. Um, which cool. Okay. You know, you you can yeah. you can catch your first moat of customers, but you know, the next ones might be harder to reach or more expensive. What social platform are you bullish on? I think it's, it's you got to look at that demographically, right? I think what's fascinating, we've been doing a lot of work with it, with products that are addressing the aging population, right? And, you know, the boomers are extremely, extremely active on Facebook, right? Whereas, you know, Gen Z and, you know, the millennial generation, you know, obviously heavily on Instagram, um, but, you know, my peers, I don't think anyone is, you know, using Snapchat too heavily, but teens are still using Snapchat. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think you kind of have to look at it generationally. And, you know, in terms of how we look at the world, I, you know, in terms of our specific focus now on these, you know, life stages um, and, af- and affordability is, you know, you, you have kind of the boomers retiring, you have millennials becoming parents and homeowners, right? You have Gen Z entering the workforce and becoming renters. Um, or, you know, taking out the student loans. So it's just an interesting time um, where there's this shift happening generationally. Um, and I think they each use their own different platforms. I don't know, I, not to dodge your question, but I think, you know, it no, goes no, no, into no, what, what's your segment. Yeah, right? I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. And, okay, so now I was saying, like, zoom forward on another question. And at what point, now this is me being, an entrepreneur myself, right? And not with Finding Mastery. This is this the other business with Compete to Create with Coach Carol. I I, I want things. I, I value excellence. I value precision. I'm not talking about perfectionism, but I value like the authentic expression of the nuance. And that just takes a certain sensitivity to getting the angles just right, whether it's the angles in words or the angles in whatever. Like, just to get that right, it's it's not easy. And it'd be so much easier to have this other approach about just hacking it and take, you know, skim the top 30%, drop the 70 and just keep going. Like, but I, I, I don't find it appealing. I don't feel any vibrance in it. Like it's not what I want to do. So my question to you in the, as a, uh, as an entrepreneur, how much 
should I attend to that precision versus the importance of meeting the timeliness of public facing information or product or service or marketing. So I feel like I'm a little bit on a treadmill right now and pushing, that's not the right word, sharing insights. And I'm starting to get waterlogged, right? With the, the ability to articulate properly what is authentic. And so I want, I, I'd just like to hear from you how you would guide me on that. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I think some of this is culture, right? Like there are some founders and entrepreneurs who are more comfortable with that, like move fast and break things mentality and, and, and also brand, right? There are some brands that are more nimble and some brands that are very focused on say, credibility, prestige, and things that are, that are very nuanced, right? So, you know, I, I think that like to, to attempt to answer your question, it seems like there are parts of your business where they just kind of need to grow slowly because you can't hire people quickly without training them on the nuances and expectations that you have, right? It's tied mm-hmm. to culture and values, right? But it's like, you really, really need to hire people who, who ultimately you could trust. And that takes time and training, um, to, to really manage your brand, right? Which it sounds like what you're really saying is your brand is one that is extremely nuanced and, and big on credibility. Um, I guess, I guess separately, what I, what I think works really well is, you know, you try to have a person or two people, you know, managing a part of your business, it's always running some experiments and you just make sure that those experiments, if, if gone wrong, don't corrupt the brand at large. Right. Um, you know, we, we run experiments all the time. Right. And, you know, even for example, this, this Kairos 50 fund that we put together was an experiment. And, you know, if, if funding all of the K50 didn't work well, you know, we would still have, you know, the core of our business, which is building and funding companies around these problems. And, and also, you know, the Kairos fellowship network of young entrepreneurs. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's, it's helpful to kind of draw that distinction. It's like, what are the non-negotiables of your business? And like, make sure you, you don't hand those off to people who you don't fully trust. Cause I've made that mistake. You know, I've like handed off the Kairos fellowship to people who, uh, you know, don't necessarily have the exact same handle on nuances of the brand and it, it, it's never worked well right now. We, we, we really, you know, focus heavily on that and, and the, our team is killing it. Um, but then also to have that that kind of science lab going on at your company, um, but just to make it. sure, no, you know, no, no. just to make you, sure it doesn't corrupt the the, the yeah. golden goose. Yeah, that's okay. That's a massive, wonderfully massive gift you just gave me. So thank you for. It's not like I didn't know what you just said, but I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're speaking right into me right now. Okay, that's rad. All right. So how about this? This is my last question, right? Um, I feel like I could go on because I really appreciate how you work. So the last question is, I know that there's people listening in our community that have done a hundred X what they ever really thought that they were going to earn in a lifetime. And they have really cracked that financial uh, independent wealth thing. And they want to give, they want to make a difference. They want to help and they want to be part of exactly what you're doing. So if they wanted to invest in your general fund, uh, is it open? Is it closed? Is it, are, are you dating people like how, how does that work yeah it's a great good question so so we will uh open up the next kairos 50 fund so that's structured as an index fund technically and it's you know a 50k check into each of the k50 i, I like that one a lot is just an entry point into this world especially if you're new to tech investing and um you know i, I think it's like if, if the overall mission and thesis of companies you know 
making life more affordable, if that resonates and you like the idea of coming in early, I think that's a great product, right? Um, for our core fund, uh, you know, we're, we're not fundraising now. I think with that one, it's much more about making sure everyone who invests in it is also a strategic uh, resource for the companies. You know, I, I think that, you know, what we believe is that, you know, the, the funding world is getting crowded, right? So, you know, we feel like it's, it's in many senses, our obligation to the founders we're backing to, you know, have our capital be strategic too, not just to our team, but through the actual investors. Um, so it's, 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 it's not to close the door, but I think that's just much more of a personal conversation uh, about, you know, the companies we're building and, and how they could get involved. Whereas the Carriage 50 Fund is much more about just making that whole batch of companies accessible to angel investors. Roger that. Okay. That makes sense? And I said last question. Yeah. And I said last question. I know that when I say that, I never completely own <laughs> that that's going to be the last question. So, okay. So here's kind of the... Uh, the last one I just have for you is that you said the VC space is crowded. Does that mean that the cl- the current climate is that there's lots of money out there l- wanting to reinvest back into businesses? Yeah, I, I, look, I think there's a there's a few different aspects of this. One is you know you compare it to when we started this ten years ago. I mean now entrepreneurship is trendy, right? So you have a massive supply of people who want to be entrepreneurs. Right. Yeah. What also yeah. happened was, you know, you started to see the kind of public visibility of of investors, uh, you know, be, in, increase. Right. You, 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 you know, even the movie, The Social Network, you know, the VCs are, you know, movie stars now. So I think mm-hmm. that career became high profile, almost like I, you know, I was young, but I imagine, you know, the way they talk about, you know, in the big short, you know, banking in, uh, in the Wolf of Wall Street era. Right, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, you just start to see kind of the glamour of the of the field pick up, um, and also, um, you know, I, I think at a macro level, you know, technology is entering all of these different industries. So, you know, even like sovereign wealth funds that you know predominantly used to you know focus on oil, you know, all everyone wants a piece of tech. So what that's created is a massive supply of investor capital that wants to get in the game. Um, and is, is doing that. Some are doing it through direct investing. So they're kind of creating their own, you know, venture arm. And some are doing this by investing in funds. I think the problem is when some of this is boosted by trend, right, which is something similar happening, I think, in the, the crypto and blockchain world. I think it's an incredibly powerful technology innovation, but a lot of people enter the game more because of sentiment and trend, right? So when something is, when, when, you know, there's wind in the sails from the trend, you just have a lot of people that are entering it and they probably won't be in this business in five years or 10 years. How crazy is that? Is that blockchain business where people are like, I'm watching a couple of people I know that are, I don't know, buying 20 supercomputers. This is a person I know that bought these 20 supercomputers. They got a, you know, an engineer that, program them just right to scrape the internet for coins like not coins but to make coins and i'm like what like it's amazing and they're i don't know it's like small dollars every day but it's adding up and i'm like what what is that and i so mean we had a major I'm, crash I'm yesterday though i mean you know i saw that it's uh look i i think it's it's one of the biggest technology breakthroughs you know maybe ever you know certainly possibly could be right decentralizing everything um, but you know, you, you have these, these 
insiders who I think truly understand it and want to build things using the technology. And then you have a lot of people who are, you know, speculating on it, right? And, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't in, in business during the dot-com era, but, uh, you know, I, it's this certainly was a mini bubble, but it just moved so quickly. It was crazy. I mean, in December, you know, we had friends who, you know, quit their jobs to day trade cryptocurrencies and thought they may never have to go back to the workforce again. <laughs> and like, you know, they were serious and like, you know, I admit that it's fun to get swept up in the hype. But, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people said this is my career um, when it started to pop. But I guarantee you most of them won't still care about this in a year. And, and the one, but the ones who stick around are probably going to be the big winners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were so many right. people that thought the internet was a sham in the 90s, right? And there's all these amazing blog posts of people talking about its potential and people hating on it. Um, but, you know, it's a 20-year game. Yeah, very so, cool. You know, you okay. just, you, you, to answer your question, it's like, you know, I, I think there are just a lot of funds out there that, um, you know, maybe I don't want to say I weren't in it for the right reasons, but, you know, got, you know, attracted to it because it was trendy and, um and what that's created is too much capital being thrown at companies. It's pushing valuations up at the early stage, which, you know, it seems good for the founders, but it's also creating unrealistic expectations because let's say you pull off your first fundraise and your valuation is $15 million. Well, all your early investors aren't going to be happy if your next one is at 16 right? Or 10. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, it's the same thing we've been oh, talking about this I whole episode, pe- right? It's like yeah, you, you, people, yeah, people aren't looking down, down the road because they're just trying to get in business. And I get it. These VC funds are trying to get in business. We, we, you know, went through this raising our first fund, but we did it on the heels of something we've been, we've been at it for 10 years. Mm. Mm. Awesome. Uh, you know, just for the record, I, I was part of an early startup founder stock ballooned up to, I think it was like, I don't know, 75 valuation. And then we had a downturn. <laughs> and, and so I, I basically like priced out, wiped out to nothing. And um, some people came in and swooped up some extra stock. And it, it, I was such a rook. I got, I got burned big time. Yeah, look, it, it happens. I mean, there's so many people right now warning about an economic downturn. And, you know, I think a lot of that has shaped our investment thesis. You know, we're, we're really focusing on things that make life more affordable because if people are already broke and it's a bull market, what's going to happen in a downturn? Um, but the downturn is going to affect all, so many aspects of this industry, including the fundraising climate. So uh, it'll be interesting. It's a rabbit hole that, you know, we, maybe we save for another time, but uh, it'll, it'll definitely be interesting. Um, I wanted to wrap with just a, just a few uh, questions for you. Um, I guess to, to set the table again, to reiterate, you know, we have 50 companies, all, you know, young, hungry founders, all solving interesting problems in one room, uh, top of the World Trade Center in New York City, November 28th. Um, we've evaluated all of the problems that they're solving. We've had good initial calls with the founders. Um, they all have real products or prototypes that we've tested. Um, so this, it's very real. Um, but, you know, what, what I want to really you know, kind of share with my team um, from this is, you know, like what, what are the, the few questions or just things we should be screening for um, to really understand these founders and to get a sense of, you know, what their companies and their cultures will look like in five years? Because, you know, I, I, more and more from, from doing this with you, you know, that's just reinforced how critical that is. And, you know, the better we can kind of get a glimpse at the future, um, 
by understanding these founders' personalities today, um, I think the better this will work out for everybody, including these founders. So I could give you specific questions, which I don't think you'll appreciate because it'll be too thinly sliced and you won't know what to do with it. So let me go up a level and give you a principle and that I think is really important. And then you can shape a, a strategy and maybe we could do it together. But the principle is that people are in their best behavior and they're already slightly nervous and um, you and your team are working to discern what is their media track? What is their highlight reel? You know, what is their prepared statements? What is the way that they want to come off? Discern that and know that there's truth in it, right? For most people, most people are not trying to be something they're exactly opposite. They're aspirationally working to present the best version of themselves. Okay. Now your job is to discern, well, how much is actually behind this highlight reel. Okay, yes, they're saying, let's go back to your model that they're all about innovation, make it, break it, fix it, you know, onto the next, whatever, whatever. And they're saying that, and they're talking about some core values and their approach, and everybody says they work hard, and everyone says they're passionate, and everyone says that it's a billion dollar industry just waiting to be tapped, and there's no great competitors, or we're so much better than all our competitors in the industry because of this unique whatever. So they're giving you their best um, foot forward and you need to press on that, right? To see like, and maybe an easy example is a little bit like an orange. So an, an orange that um, has a thin skin, if you drop that, it cracks and you lose the juice, okay? An orange that has some sturdiness behind it, it's got a lot of thickness in that skin and it's got that white tissue. I don't know exactly what it's called. The like the right underneath the rind of the of the orange, and you drop that, it'll take the uh, it'll absorb it, it'll bounce, it'll roll, it'll work with it, it won't dent and damage. And so you're looking for the weight or the sustenance or um, the durability slash flexibility nimbleness of a person. So how do you do that? So if you think about a scale one to ten, this is all principal stuff, right? Um, you think about a scale one to ten, one ten on this internal activation scale is like the kid or the adult, I should say in this case, is about ready to throw up in their mouth and they're sweating and they're shaking and it's hard for them to think clearly. That's an important indicator that they haven't, they don't have the internal resources to even manage themselves. They haven't mastered their inner domain well enough to articulately present their best self. Okay. Or even present ideas that are wonderfully stimulating and potentially uh, world changing. Okay. So now let's break that scale one to 10 up into three zones, seven, eight, nine, 10, four, five, and six, and one, two, and three. Nobody's going to be at the one, two, and three. Everyone's going to be switched on. Some are going to hit that sweet spot. That four, five, six is going to be like, yeah, okay. This man, this woman is in her groove and it's on. And wow, look at the charisma, look at the authenticity, look at the clarity, look at, and you're going to feel that. So that tells you that they have a command of their inner domain. That's really important because this environment that you're creating already is stimulating. Can they manage that external stimulation with their already existing internal stimulation? You get those two together. This is why pressure is so wonderful. You're creating this artificial pressure environment to see if they have an internal skill. If they're up in the seven, eight, nine uh, environment, pay attention 
and see if you can press on it to feel where is the chink, <laughs> you know, dig in somewhere like, and even ask the hard question, like, okay, it seems like you're, you're really nervous. Where's that coming from? And then just watch, see, see where they take it. Did they get real or did they cover it up? If they cover it up, you got problems. If they get real and they're like, I am. You're like, oh, good. Look at that. Okay. So they're making some choices about being authentic. If somebody's in their strike zone, four, five, and six, what you want to make sure that when they're presenting their best self there, that when you lean in and dig in, that you're trying to um, bump them up that scale. So you're trying to shift their physiology by increasing their, um, their presentation of anxiousness or their actual felt anxiousness. So that's where you got to get in there and ask the difficult questions and you dig and you dig to find, it's almost like a, um, that's a good example, like, like a, uh, a bee trying to find just the right, um, pollen, you know, is that what they do? Yeah. They're digging into, yeah, into yeah, a we'll flower just the right way. So yeah, that's good. Okay. So <laughs> I've never said that before, but they're digging in trying to find it. And so that, that is kind of your job is to see what's underneath the, the polish self-presentation. And if they're smooth, great. I don't mean smooth like slick. I just mean that they're eloquent and thoughtful and they don't break from, you know, like getting pissed or they don't break from like an anxious standpoint where they become so overwhelmed that they can't think clearly. But that's where you start digging. And yeah, you can ask questions like, you know, um, fill in the blank, anything kind of silly to random to whatever. But knowing the questions that you ask, you're actually looking for two things. You're looking for their response, both verbally as an expression of their thinking patterns and emotionally, right? Their physiology, if you will. So you're always looking for those two and you're trying to see, you know, uh, what's underneath the surface. So that's, that's the, the, the structure, if you will, that informs the questions that I ask. That's one of the, you know, handful of structures that I'm always working from. Yeah, that's super helpful. I mean, I, I think from a tactical perspective, you know, I, I, I am curious though, uh, you know, a lot of times what happens, right. In these types of environments is, you know, it, it favors the extroverts. Right. But I think, you know, one thing we've learned is, you know, certain types of businesses are better for more introverted founders. Um, but in either scenario, you, you know, what we need to know is that this is a, a CEO that is committed to this business and this problem. So I'm curious if you have, you know, a suggestion maybe on one question that, uh, can be asked that, you know, kind of fits all types of personalities, but helps us understand their, their commitment to solving this problem. Um, because again, mm. we're, we're not trying to just, you know, I use the scouting combine analogy, but, you know, for, we don't want this to feel like an evaluation. You know, we really want to help and empower these founders either way. They've already built great things, right? So what I loved about your conversation with Michael, right, is like that was beneficial for everybody. Right. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so, so I'd if, love to strike if, that balance, right? As opposed yeah, to a, a combine where it's like, please draft me. Like these guys are already in the league. It's just a question of you know who they work with. You know, I think that everyone's going to say that they care the most about this. I mean, they're there for a reason. They, you know, like I think that you've got you've got a little bit of a challenge there because there's a self presenting in a favorable way that's right. going to naturally take place. So I would deconstruct what you mean by commitment. And I think what you mean is their vision is clear. They have a history of demonstrating perseverance for that vision or other visions, you know, but you want to make sure that somebody hasn't had multiple visions in their life, that there's a core theme that they're trying to sort out. They can have multiple businesses, 
you know, because things failed and they learned that that's not too much of a red flag, but are they staying the course on the main theme in their life? That's the main theme. So it's long-term vision. It is a demonstration of perseverance that they stay with it. And through difficult times, they demonstrate that resiliency that supports perseverance. And they, at the same time, they have a noticeable zest and passion to wrestle with the hard questions and they find it stimulating and you can see it and feel it when somebody is alive with it. When you ask the deeper parts of the, the, you can ask like things like, what are you trying to solve? You know, this is your life effort right now, you know, maybe a life effort for the rest of your life, but what, what is it that you're trying to solve and watch the animation if they go, Oh, I love that question. Cause no one has it sorted out, right? Like, no, I don't, I don't know anyone that has it all sorted out and there's something we're trying to solve, figure out. And you can see it as a puzzle, you know, pieces, or you can see it more as a tapestry. I like the tapestry look. And so just asking that question and what you're looking for to drill down underneath of that, is it clarity of vision? Did did they have a history of demonstrating perseverance? Um, And then, you know, do they live with passion? And so with Michael, you recognize one of the things I was asking about the two culprits of passion. So what gets in the way, passion is this inner fire. What gets in the way of it is, or no, what covers or dampens that inner fire is anxiety and fatigue. And so I I think that if I'm going to invest my money and or uh, time and energy in somebody, I want to know that they're going to kick ass, work hard. They care. They really, really care about making a difference. And they're going to have a self-care about themselves as well, because I'm not playing the long game. I understand that to work towards thin herd experiences in life, there's mastery of self and mastery of craft. And you can't get the mastery of craft if you're just burning the end the candle at both ends and you don't think clearly you're irritable, um, you know, and emotionally erratic. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, I love that. I think, uh, you know, we're going to be creating videos of each of them and there's an opportunity to ask some of these questions in a way that should make them more marketable, um, but we'll force this kind of introspection. So this is super helpful. <laughs> well, well we, are, uh, we are in the weeds and the event is uh, in a week. So I, I look forward to reporting back. Ah, so good. So good. Have a blast. I can't wait to hear on the other side. I want to learn what you learn. And then um, thanks for your time. Likewise. Happy holidays. Yeah. Okay. All the best. Take care. See you. All right. Thank you so much for diving into another episode of Finding Mastery with us. Our team loves creating this podcast and sharing these conversations with you. We really appreciate you being part of this community. And if you're enjoying the show, the easiest no-cost way to support is to hit the subscribe or follow button wherever you're listening. Also, if you haven't already, please consider dropping us a review on Apple or Spotify. We are incredibly grateful for the support and feedback. If you're looking for even more insights, we have a newsletter we send out every Wednesday. Punch over to findingmastery.com slash newsletter to sign up. This show wouldn't be possible without our sponsors, and we take our recommendations seriously. And the team is very thoughtful about making sure we love and endorse every product you hear on the show. If you want to check out any of our sponsor offers you heard about in this episode, 
You can find those deals at findingmastery.com slash sponsors. And remember, no one does it alone. The door here at Finding Mastery is always open to those looking to explore the edges and the reaches of their potential so that they can help others do the same. So join our community, share your favorite episode with a friend, and let us know how we can continue to show up for you. Lastly, as a quick reminder, information in this podcast and from any material on the Finding Mastery website and social channels is for information purposes only. If you're looking for meaningful support, which we all need, one of the best things you can do is to talk to a licensed professional. So seek assistance from your healthcare providers. Again, a sincere thank you for listening. Until next episode, be well, think well, and keep exploring.